This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and Easter Sunday, please consider in your almsgiving a tax-deductible gift to our ministry. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the spiritual journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents Crossing the Desert, Lent and Conversion with Deacon James Keating. Deacon Keating is the Director of Theological Formation at the Institute for Priestly Formation located at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. He has led over 400 workshops on moral theology and spirituality nationwide. He is the author of numerous books, including Crossing the Desert, on which this series is based. Crossing the Desert, Lent and Conversion with Deacon James Keating. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Deacon Keating. Thank you. We've been traveling essentially through Crossing the Desert, your book on Lent and conversion. And in the chapter, The Desert of Sin, you make us aware that we never get to a point in our lives where we can say we are perfectly virtuous. Is there an end? Well, the fulfillment of of our lives is as this response to Jesus. I mean, that's all our life is. Our Our life is this response to the love of God is perfectly fulfilled only after death in heaven. And we see this, of course, in the lives of many saints who still had great sorrow for even their venial sins as death approached. They did not get their act together perfectly, so to speak, and uh, nobody can. But the more and more we yield to Christ and the mystery of Christ on the cross and his great love for us, obviously, the more and more we're going to offer to him those very serious sins, those mortal sins, those true sins that block our reception of the holiness of God. And so we're going to get better over time. And this is the really hopeful message of Catholic moral teaching, is that over time, when we enter the fullness of our faith, we will not be doing the same old sins, stuck in the same rut of sinfulness, in five years, in two years, these realities will be healed in us. And it's crucial for us to know that we will not perhaps become perfect, but we will certainly become better. We will certainly become more adept at receiving the holiness of God. In fact, this notion of perfection is crucial for us to reflect on just for a moment, particularly in its aberration of perfectionism. You see this a lot of times in marriage counseling, where one or the other spouse will demand that the the spouse is perfect. They don't use those words because they know how ludicrous that sounds. Well, Bob is not perfect as a husband. Well, of course he's not as human, but she will still demand this in many ways. Or a husband will demand of his wife to be perfect. Particularly, I find with the men, it's usually a superficial perfection regarding the way they look physically. And so, you know, he will want her to uh, have a certain hairstyle or lose certain weight or have certain body type. And all of this projection of perfectionism on either side is simply a lack 
of spirituality. See, we're looking for God all the time because we were made for God. And marriage is such a close, symbolic a vision of God. It's, a, it's, it's sort of a reflection of God. This is why spouses are so hard on one another a lot of times. They project their need for divinity onto their spouse. And the cure to that desire for perfection is prayer, is spirituality. It seems simple, but it's absolutely true that you have to stop and leave your husband alone and leave your wife alone. And you have to go to the person, the only person who will ever satisfy you to the point of rest, which is God. Then your wife or your husband can take on those dimensions that are simply faithful to what it means to be human. And they will be character dimensions or virtue dimensions. And yes, there'll be some vice and there'll be some imperfections, but that's what it means to be a faithful until death do you part as a human being. The best cure to many, many marriage difficulties, and this is on an unconscious level, but that the man has to go deep into his need for God. The woman has to go deep into her need for God. And for goodness sake, leave your spouse alone. Of course, you will call the spouse away from evil. In other words, you'd be a poor spouse if you didn't call the spouse away from sin. But all other types of realities, you didn't give me the house I deserve, you're you're not in the perfect job that you want, again, you don't look the certain way that I want you to look, all of that is simply baggage that you're imposing on a spouse and probably depressing him or her and uh, a reflection of your own depression, perhaps, because your own spiritual life is shallow. Part of that relationship that we have in marriage is that commitment to be faithful to them in all things. Wouldn't our intercessory prayer for them be part of that faithfulness? The married couples don't really realize that this is the great power that's laying dormant in their lives to go before the Blessed Sacrament and intercede for your spouse and to intercede all the time and often. That's why you were given to one another. You were given to one another so that you will grow in virtue together. When we're immature, we think we're given to one another for one another's pleasure or as a diversion or as a companion or as a friend or worse, a status symbol all sorts of mixed motivations for marriage. As we grow in Christian maturity, we realize that God has given us one to the other so that we can help one another become saints. That is the only reason Catholics should marry. And everybody who's doing marriage formation today should be moving the engaged couple in that direction with questions as obvious as, how will you help your future husband become a saint? One of the ways, of course, is that we're going to intercede for this man or this woman until we die. But this question of holiness and moving away from sin has to be in the forefront, has to be right on the table of marriage preparation. Otherwise, we will simply be marrying two Americans, two Americans who were influenced by the popular culture of America as their vision of of marriage. A lot of priests joke that they'd rather do, you know, 200 wakes than one wedding. And the reason they joke that way is because they're sick and tired 
of the superficiality of the wedding day, of the projections by the moms and the dads onto their children of what they need and the country club and the limo and this endless sense with the obsession with the clothing. And, and it ends at a party and then it goes off onto some honeymoon, which you can't really even call it a honeymoon anymore. It's more a vacation because most of our kids aren't virgins anymore on their wedding night. So there's no sense here that they're going to actually fully receive each other for the first time and fully gift one another for the first time. It's just a vacation. They've been on other vacations before together, and it's really no big deal. This one might cost more money because it had to be showy. So this whole ludicrous parade of American Catholic weddings makes an authentically spiritual priest sick in his heart because he realizes that in witnessing this type of wedding, that these two young people are in danger of, yes, perhaps staying married forever, but staying married as Americans and not as helpmates to holiness. This is the sadness of his heart. It comes out in a joke, sort of black humor. I'd rather do 200 wakes than one wedding. But what's really happening in his heart is this profound sadness that no matter how long I spent with these kids and with their parents, nobody got it. Nobody got that this wedding was in Christ. And so the whole movement of conversion that is necessary for the human has to begin to take center stage in the formation of married couples. They're getting married to assist one another in conversion from sin. That's why God gave them to one another. Conversion from sin is our goal. We want to die in each other's arms as saints. That's the whole point. In our understanding of a sacramental marriage, it's imperative that we have an appreciation of God's presence within that marriage. No couple's going to make it till death do them part, unless there's some sense of expediency, that they need each other for some pragmatic reason. There's some human affection that keeps them going. But most people today are going to need to draw from the living Spirit of God that's in them to stay together, to learn how to forgive one another and not leave one another, to learn how to reconcile and not draw a wedge between one another in revenge, but to truly understand the mystery of forgiveness which then opens up to yet another year of living together. And we only take it right day by day, month by month, year by year. But we truly need the Spirit of God because there's no cultural helps anymore. To be married as a Catholic today, and if you ended up a week later or two weeks later saying it was over, collectively the culture would sigh with boredom and probably some sense of efficiency. Well, okay, you tried that one, now move on to the next. There's no cultural support for what we're doing. So unless you actually have the intention of entering into a mystical marriage, a marriage that there is deep shared prayer, a marriage that draws its strength from the interior dwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit that kept Christ on the cross and the Spirit that deepened His joy, at the resurrection. Unless you draw from that interior spirit, 
Just having Jesus as a model is not enough. Not today. We have to move deeper than moral models. We have to actually move deep into a mystical reciprocity. My heart is yielding to the interior dwelling of the living God. And the interior dwelling of the living God is gifting me with the strength and the reasons to forgive and to stay with you. And my spouse is undergoing the same mystical reciprocity. Now, what kind of marriage prep is needed for that? A much different kind of Catholic marriage has to emerge than what we're used to today. If marriage is to recover and to become sort of a beacon for others. This has always been the case, though. It's only been underscored by the cultural dissolution of its reverence for marriage. This mystical element has always been the Catholic understanding of marriage. But when the whole culture supported marriage, it became dormant in our consciousness that we had to share and draw from the nuptial loving of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That became dormant. Since it was a social thing, and all of society agreed that couples should at least really try to stay together. There were lots of supports in culture and even the government. But now that all that's been stripped away, then the mystical has to come roaring to the fore again, or there'll be nothing to support us in our marriage. So this interiority, this truth of interiority, has to be at the core of marriage prep. Not the model of Jesus, but the very sharing of the way of Jesus from Jesus' own spirit. That's what's going to keep us together. For those persons who are not in a relationship that leads to a, a vocational awareness in marriage, for those persons, the cross really is that sign of faithfulness that they need to draw on. Yeah, they have to cling to that sense that when Jesus was most helpless, he did his most powerful work. And this goes back to the heart of your question about intercessory prayer. When Jesus was most powerless, he did his most powerful work. Just being faithful, pinned to the cross, he saved us. Salvation flowed from his heart when the sword lanced his side and blood and water flowed out. The sacramental symbol that salvation was pouring out of his fidelity. Now, couples in very, very difficult marriages where they are estranged from each other emotionally, what the church is asking them to do is to mystically unite themselves to this fidelity and to at least give Christ a chance to heal them from within, to at least draw from the power of his fidelity at the moment of the least power that he had, at least in human terms, being nailed to the cross, to draw from that mystery of faithful love, even with the pain that's involved. Now, of course, whenever you talk this way about prayer, spirituality, mysticism, somebody's going to raise their hand and simply say, well, are you trying to tell me that a wife has to stay with a husband who's being beaten? And the church is not mentally ill. It's not a ludicrous church. The church says that woman must be safe. And she must find safety. And if it means some type of long-term separation, then the church will certainly say 
that is virtuous, tragic, but virtuous. At least he, the husband, hopefully is getting help or being punished by the criminal system. But this woman is being faithful to her words, words that she uttered in Christ, words that from the very beginning, perhaps, she knew would mean crucifixion. Or for the husband, who ends up marrying a woman who has a tragic accident and becomes a paraplegic. And he has to stay with her until death do them part. When the church teaches that we should not divorce, and further, we should not remarry if we do divorce, the only reason it can teach that teaching is because it believes in the very depths of its soul that it is the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that is keeping us faithful. Our puny power would have us out the door at the first sign of suffering because we are so wounded by sin. The church, again, is not ignorant. It is saying that you should not divorce, you cannot divorce if you have a, a legitimate marriage in the church, because it's assuming that you love Jesus' mysteries. It's assuming that you're drawing from those mysteries at the Eucharist. It's assuming that you're pouring over the Word of God and becoming one who possesses the mind of Christ. It's assuming that you're not satisfied with simply being an American, which has no salvific meaning whatsoever. It's assuming that you believe what you say when you want to get married in the church. It's assuming all these things. Now, if you present yourself for marriage and you have not let conversion affect you, you're a liar. If you present yourself for marriage and you have no affection and love at all for Jesus Christ and it's a family tradition, you're a liar. If you present yourself for marriage in the church and you at least do not aspire to understand and to take on the teachings of the church and to be open to conversion in the presence of the priest or the other formators of marriage, you're a liar. And you need to be converted. This is not the justice of the peace. This is not a place for someone to be married simply because it's a pretty building and you get the license at the end. This is a place of crucifixion. As someone once said to me about the bride, they said when a bride comes to the back of the church on her wedding day and looks at the groom and she starts coming down the aisle, he said, no bride ever looks at the stations of the cross. But you should. Every bride and every groom should look at the stations of the cross because you are about to enter intimacy with Jesus in his very passion in his very self-giving, in his very self-donation. He wants to live that mystery over again in you.
Do you understand the privilege of that kind of marriage? He wants to live his mysteries over again in you. And if you say yes, he will make you a saint. If it takes a year of marriage preparation, take the year. If it takes two years to understand these mysteries, take the two years. If it takes three, take three. You are not wasting your time. You are receiving the greatest of gifts from the church. You're receiving your identity as a bride and a groom who draw their meaning not from some simple, simplistic, anemic understanding of love that's given to us by the American popular culture. But you are receiving the very meaning of your love from love itself. Demand this kind of formation. Demand it. If you're spiritually and mentally and affectively healthy, you will demand this depth of formation, even if it takes years. Six months to prepare for a marriage that's supposed to last forever? Six months in a culture like this? That's laughable. Totally laughable. We will never get these mysteries in six months. Let us be generous, at least, to the Lord. And let us be at least filled with enough self-love to take as long as it takes to be affected by Jesus' love itself as we prepare to love our spouse until death do us part. I was struck when you were speaking of the Stations of the Cross because in that union that occurs between a man and woman in that sacrament of marriage, the Station of the Cross is not the type of burden that even Christ had to carry when he had to carry his cross alone. At least in marriage, you have each other to assist one another. In marriage, we are one another's crosses, and we do help one another carry the cross. That's the great mystery of the interpenetrating intimacy of the spouses. It's like we cause one another to suffer, and yet we are also the ones who heal. And in Christ, of course, he's moving us to ask for forgiveness after we hurt our spouse. And he's also moving us to assist our spouse with any other kind of crosses that they bear, whether it's health or psychic or emotional, or perhaps it's about a family crisis or a professional or career crisis. I mean, the spouse is the gift, the gift that brings healing, primarily just through listening, but the gift that brings healing that has been given to you by Christ himself so that you will not be alone. And so it is a great paradox. And yet at the same time, we draw great solace from the fact that I will not be carrying my cross alone. This is our mutual cross. If you even imagine it that way, both of you, the groom and the bride, shouldering it both together as you go up the hill. You're helping one another. In Christ, though, you're not just helping one another as nice people or as people who have read self-help books or taken active listening classes. You're helping one another in Christ, which means you're helping one another from the very depths of your 
mutual reception of Jesus in prayer. That's where the real, unique, and substantive help is coming from. There's a reason why we come to the church to be married, why we process to the altar to receive the sacrament. It's not just the bride and the groom, but it's essential to have the cloud of witnesses there, isn't it? The community is there, obviously, for reasons of the law. I mean, at least the people that you choose to be in your wedding party. But these witnesses that are with you, friends, family, here's where we can talk about the emulation. Here's where we can talk about the moral modeling. Hopefully, some of these people gave you a glimpse of the depth that marriage can go to. They weren't your official formators that you got when you registered to uh, get married and you spent six months with the priest or the deacon or the lay team. But somewhere in the back of your mind and hopefully in your heart, the marriage of your Aunt Teresa to Uncle Willie became iconic to you. They'd suffered greatly. They had deep joys. They were very upfront that they drew their love from Christ. But these people who gather around you at your wedding day were your original formators, hopefully. And of course, my sympathies go out to anyone who's just simply had a family or friends that were just obsessed with the superficiality of the American cultural understanding of marriage. And they're the ones, they're the ones that are on your wedding day. I remember after um, some of the, the weddings I presided at, finding beer cans in the back of a church and realizing how sad it was that these people's so-called friends could not even think of the welfare of the bride and the groom long enough to prevent them from following their own bent disorders to drink during the ceremony. Hopefully, that this cloud of witnesses that is yours, at least one or two of those couples, were living this life of depth with Christ, and they become your role models, and they become the ones that perhaps you go to for counseling. But most definitely, if you have none of those in your family, then you can draw from the saints. Particularly someone like St. Gianna Mola, the married physician, and the lovely marriage that she had with her husband, and all that she gave for her children. If there aren't people around you that are living, there are certainly brothers and sisters in Christ who have been canonized. We can have access to their understanding of marriage and to spend lots of time with them. That alone will be healing for you. We're out of time for this segment, Deacon Keating. Do you have any final thoughts? Just in terms of this sense of preparation for vocation, to really fix your minds and your hearts on the idea that Christ is giving you a vocation because this is the easiest route for you to be reached by him in his desire to forgive and convert you from sin. That is the only goal. Let him reach you in your vocation so that he can forgive and convert you from sin. Thank you, Deacon Keating. Thank you. You've been listening to Crossing the Desert, Lent and Conversion with Deacon James Keating. To hear and or to download this episode, 
along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com or download the free Discerning Hearts app available at the Apple app and Google Play app stores. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Crossing the Desert, Lent and Conversion with Deacon James Keating.